Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Our mission is fulfillment for everyone. The goal of this show is to introduce you to the people and ideas that will help you live truly fulfilling lives. Today I'm speaking with Greg Lukanyov. Greg is an attorney, a New York Times bestselling author, and the president and CEO of FIRE, which stands for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. His books include Unlearning Liberty and The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, which he co-authored with social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. He's an executive producer of Can We Take a Joke, a feature-length documentary that explores the collision between comedy, censorship and outrage culture. He frequently appears on TV shows such as CBS, Evening News and The Today Show, and he's testified before both the US Senate and the House of Representatives. Greg, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thanks so much for having me. You think in some ways freedom of speech is a victim of its own success. What do you mean by that? Oh, wow. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's um, something that I, I like to say that um, basically when it comes to the First Amendment, we have a generation of students who came of age at a time where we were dealing with the really kind of um, uh, signs of, of the success of the First Amendment, the signs of success of freedom of speech. So a lot of the cases that were being decided uh, in, in, in First Amendment law in the U.S. by, say, 20, 2005 were cases involving, you know, horrible people like the Westboro Baptist Church, uh, things about whether or not people can record or, or sell um, animal crush videos, a lot of kind of unsympathetic stuff. But if you if freedom of speech is successful, um, if, if that's you eventually get to the stage where all that's really left are some of these cases that are um, really, really unsympathetic. Um, and but if that's all a population has seen, I have some sympathy for younger people not being as pro free speech because they weren't around. They have no living memory of being around when it was their heroes getting in trouble, when it was. Um, the civil rights movement or, or, well, and they should have living memory, but when it was the gay rights movement, for goodness sakes, because gay marriage becoming constitutionally protected was very recent. But they're also not really taught about a lot of a lot of these things. So once you have a right so firmly protected, it's easy to start taking it for granted. And when all you see um, in, uh, in popular depictions of what's protected are the kind of things that you would immediately associate with things that are repugnant, then I at least have some sympathy for a generation that actually is less pro-free speech, but I still think it's misguided. You think there's always a value in knowing what people really think, and not even if it's horrible, but especially when you think it's horrible. One of the great values of freedom of speech, it's to actually simply know what people think. It's super important to always know what people really think. And if you look at the discourse around, say, like bigotry, for example, um, the way it's framed in current discussion is that, well, that's low value speech, that, that's, that someone being a bigot and expressing bigoted thoughts is low value. So therefore, it's less important that we protect it. And if you put your anthropologist hat on rather than your sort of like a judge of moral propriety, that seem, that starts to seem a little childish because it's as if saying that bad man with bad ideas should not talk um, is what we're judging our society by other, other, when it really should be. Why does why does bad man have bad idea? Where did this come from? Um, and the idea that you can actually improve society by chilling people from expressing what they actually believe, I think is very wrongheaded because it does drive people to increasingly talk to other people who have that forbidden opinion. And that social psychology shows very well leads to people getting uh, more entrenched in that. They get more arguments on their 
uh, you know, up, uh, side of the argument, and they become more polarized. And this is something that is really predictable in social science. And if you tell people who agree with each other to go over in a corner and talk to each other, they come back more radicalized in the position of the, uh, the, the from the position that they started with. So I, I think that one other way we ended up we ended up with Donald Trump and and, and the presidency was partially because people were going to door to door polling people um, and they didn't want to answer <laughs> that they were going to um, uh, vote for Trump and it led to this misperception of how in the bag everything was for uh, was for Hillary because the polling wasn't very accurate. And and that leads kind of my point is that you're not safer for knowing less about the world and what people really think is a really crucial part of, of, of about the world. And let, like you said, especially if it's a bad thing, if people have horrible opinions on something, you're not going to make that go away by not examining it, by not listening to it, by not hearing it. We have this illusion this illusion right. that we're safer, but actually it's just going underground or it's just, it's just, it's not, it's not disappearing. Well, and that, and that's something that I'm working on a lot of your article to try to be clear on because in first amendment law, there's this idea that things can be driven underground where they can fester, but the science is actually much stronger than this kind of abstract idea that things can fester. It's that when people, you know, when you censor somebody, it generally doesn't change their opinion. Actually for a lot of people, it makes them more convinced that they must be onto something, that they must be right. But if it's illegal in particular, they don't bother telling people they know will disagree with them who could potentially talk them out of it. They only talk to the people that they know or suspect already hold that point of view. And then you end up with, you know, 300 arguments from all your friends on one side of a position and having heard maybe one or two from the news. Um, and that's kind of called the hydraulic effect of group polarization, where essentially uh, Cass Sunstein champions this one, where essentially you just get more arguments on one side. Um, if you uh, sort of force um, uh, force silence on different issues. But then there's what John Haidt and I also talk about, which is the tribalism, that not only um, is there this sort of rational kind of like you just by sheer number of arguments, you become more confident in your point of view. But the other part of it is once you're actually pushed into a group, particularly if that group uh, has a perception of themselves as being outsiders or downtrodden or somehow oppressed, it tends to create a sense of tribalism among them, which is a very powerful force in human nature. The, the ancients gave us a lot of psychological wisdom, ideas about how to thrive, how to get along with people, principles like Boy, did they. what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And this has been handed down for generations and generations. But somehow we've begun teaching kids that what doesn't kill them might make them weaker and we need mm -hmm. to protect them from words and things like that. In the book, we, we try to basically we tried to get back to uh, in Coddling the American Mind. We tried to get back to what we did what we think we did correctly in the original article in 2015, also called Coddling the American Mind. And the premise more or less is it's as if we're giving a generation of students and young people the world's worst possible advice. Um, and, and one of the examples of that we get is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Now, of course, um, this doesn't mean that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is always true. There are things that don't kill you that just leave you incapacitated. <laughs> Um, but it's dysfunctional advice, though, to tell people avoid challenges because it will always harm them. And if you look at the way we deal with a lot of uh, a lot of issues around trauma on campus, for example, um, that is kind of the presumption that, that basically we start from the premise that people are really fragile and they don't recover. When social science actually indicates that we're actually surprisingly resilient and that post-traumatic growth syndrome is probably more common than post-traumatic um, uh, stress syndrome. And by that, that people, when they go through challenging times, and I know this from personal experience, having uh, recovered from a pretty horrible year that included everything from a death in the family, a car accident, and a tumor, 
that I was kind of shocked to see even myself that by the end of it, I just kind of, kind of felt good. Like essentially like we'd been challenged and this is okay. And that is a very common response to really awful things that happen to people. Now that's not to say that people aren't uh, damaged, you know, for the rest of their lives in some cases, and, or at least for some cases for a very long period of time by experiencing or seeing horrible things. Um, But the approach on campus oftentimes is to basically tell them you're broken forever. Um, and there's nothing we can do about that. And it's kind of funny because framed in the language on campus, it sounds, they managed to make that sound compassionate. But when you think about the sort of like psychological mechanisms behind this, it's it ends up being uh, very cruel. It can really create a lot more psychological pain. It can teach people that they can't actually handle their own lives. And what happens when people feel like they don't have control um, over their own lives, that they can't handle their own lives? They become anxious and depressed. You think that it's your generation that's done actually a lot of harm? Because I think you, um, I heard you mention <laughs> yes. about Wendy Kaminer, who wrote a book in the 90s, Seeing yes. This Coming, where if you have this sort of therapeutic state idea, yep. uh, it can actually end up being incredibly disempowering. Absolutely. And that's actually what I wanted to call the book. I, I, I've been on record for saying I've never liked the title Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, and we explain what, that we mean something much more limited by it, that essentially all we mean is that sometimes things, you just like with mothers coddling children, Sometimes the things that you do to help people actually doesn't help them. It disempowers them. Um, But people see coddling and they think we just mean something like spoiled, which is not what we mean. And I originally wanted the title to be disempowered because that's the thing that in efforts to protect children, in a lot of cases, what we're saying is um, I read this book called The Myth of the Spoiled Child, which really kind of blew me away because it was supposed to be kind of a critique of the idea of some degree of coddling. And it talked about protecting your kids from failure um, in this very sort of self-confident way and talking about just the pain of failing um, and, and how, why should you really experience that as a child? And it kind of blew me away because I played sports as a kid. I, I, I failed a million different times as a kid. And eventually the great thing about learning how to fail is that it is that first time. Yeah, that hurts a lot. The first time you fail on something you really care about, particularly when you're young, but everybody who's ever played sports or uh, done anything competitively, eventually you're kind of like, okay, I lost today. Uh, you know, good, good job, other side. Let's let let's go again next time. And it actually has the result of by facing pain and teaching people how to deal with a little bit of pain. In the long run, you actually uh, equip them from not experiencing as much. This and that's an empowerment idea. But if you tell somebody saying, oh, my God, I wouldn't want you to get a bad grade because you'd just be devastated, (laughs) you know, it's like, are you so you think you're doing this person a favor by telling them to be, by the way, be very, very frightened of the following things because you can't actually handle these things. You'll never recover. Uh, Have a nice day (laughs) and don't feel anxious or depressed. Um, So we've been following a disempowerment model. And this is something that Wendy Kaminer, she wrote, she wrote a book that had one of my favorite titles of a book ever, which is I'm dysfunctional, you're dysfunctional, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which was more or less trying to say, it's like, we should emphasize the fact that to a degree, this is all true, that that all of us are a little bit of a mess. But if you look on campuses, it's as if we've gone from the sophisticated, it's the one thing I like about Freud, by the way, is that I think Freud was wrong about a million things. But at least he had a messy conception of what human <laughs> unconsciousness looks like, that, it, that it's all over the place. It's a, it's a weird mixture of impulses, desires, things we don't really know we're thinking, things we know we're thinking that are wrong. We're, everybody's just kind of a, a big old mess. Whereas if you look at some of the stuff that we see on campuses, it seems to have gone for a much sort of simpler 
kind of uh, model of sometimes, as we talk about in the book, of good versus evil. There's an ideological component to that where, you know, there's a since universities tend to lean so, so far in one political direction where there's a lot more of kind of like you're, you're either with us or against us. But this also manifests in how we think about trauma as if there is just, um, you know, a, a group of people who have had bad experiences and that everybody else without recognizing the fact that if you look at the stats on how many people either, you know, have had uh, clinical depression, have been hospitalized uh, for anything from a life-threatening disease to, you know, depression, anxiety, um, who have friends who have committed suicide, who know people, you start actually getting a picture of something that um, a lot of these things that we sometimes will act like are experiences unique to some students at a particular school are actually simply uh, part of the human condition. And that, uh, and, and that in some ways, um, dividing the world into this overly simplified kind of, uh, you know, either oppressor versus oppressed or simply uh, traumatized versus, you know, privileged, um, we're really underplaying the, the, the wonderful, interesting, but also tragic and heartbreaking nature of what it means to be human. And if you think, if you're kind of thinking this is something which you have in you alone, then it's a very isolating, lonely feeling, as opposed to realizing that this is something that we all kind of share. And it's oh my God, I, I, 100% hit, hit, hit the nail on the head too. And it's something that, um, when you start realizing that other people, that other people you might have think, you know, in some cases you might think have at all, have had similarly painful experiences, um, it can really bring people together as a sense of that sense of kind of having gone through something and come out on the other end of it is something that it's a, can be a basis for friendships between people who are extraordinarily different from each other. Otherwise, I'm gonna paraphrase slash butcher this because I can't actually remember it at all. But there was <laughs> there was there's there's a stat and I'm. I'm apologies if I get this completely wrong, but it was something about in times of great disaster or wars, things like depression or suicide rates go down, which you know, yes. you'd, you'd think it would go up, but it's actually a very connective thing and actually people rally together as opposed to, yes. so it's the opposite of what you think it would be. Yep. And, and yeah, and I, I think that's Emil Durkheim. I think it is because uh, he uh, um, did a lot of studies on suicide rates during wartime, for example. And I know a lot of his students did, did that as well. And at one level, it's kind of surprising. You would think that people would just be kind of uh, grind down, you know, by stress. Um, but in a lot of cases, one, it can create a sense of solidarity. But it also gives you that sense, um, <laughs> it's going to sound like a, a tangent, but it will make sense. Stephen King had this great quote about why people like horror movies. Um, because like, why would want someone want to intentionally go in to be scared by a movie and people will rate the absolute most terrifying movies as the best horror movies. The ones that <laughs> really scared the hell out of me were, were, were the ones that I thought was best. And his answer, which makes perfect sense, um, is that it gives you that sense of having gotten through something. That at the end of a good horror movie, uh, when there's that last person who managed to defeat, you know, Jason in the woods or like whatever, um, you have that sense of like, that's you and that you got through it somehow. So you have this sense of sort of elevation, that sense of having gotten through something and simulating that experience is something we do in everything from cinema to theater to roller coasters, for goodness sakes. So there is sort of a, and that's gets to the point of us being anti-fragile. Um, anti-fragile is this idea that there's not just things that are, either fragile or resilient, there's this third category. This is an idea from Nassim Taleb, which we, which John and I both take very seriously and came independently to the book wanting to talk about anti-fragility, that there's these categories of things that actually benefit from knocks and from stressors. Uh, and they benefit from them, but also they really decline if they don't have them. 
So, for example, um, he, he thinks of evolution as being a system that ultimately requires stressors. Um, that uh, human, the human body is something that requires stressors. That you send somebody up into space where there's no gravity, um, their bones very rapidly start deteriorating, and they have to really uh, be, be careful about that. But we also think, you know, this is true of the uh, of, of the human psyche. That essentially, if you're if we do like. Um, the Buddha's father did for him, try to protect them from all, all unpleasantness in life. Well, in a sense, you're sort of giving this tremendous amount of power to the unpleasantness of life. Whereas if you empower people to be able to go out and handle it, you're actually really doing them a favor. You're preparing them for the road, um, not the road for the child. One of the great books um, that we and great authors that we talked to is my old friend, Julie Lifcott Haynes, who wrote a wonderful book called How to Raise an Adult. And we met at Stanford, where she became the um, uh, dean of freshmen. And she explains this kind of tragic sight of these absolutely genius kids sometimes coming in and how the, at first it was just a few and then it was it just got bigger and bigger every year who were, you know, uh, absolutely way ahead of the curve on on physics and way ahead on the curve on chemistry and way ahead of the curve on all of these, like, deeply academic topics. Uh, but when it came to making simple decisions about their daily life, they had to call their parents. They felt impl- they, they would run, uh, they, you know, on the one hand, that meant they had a very loving relationship with their parents. But they also were kind of, there are people who didn't think they were equipped to deal with their daily lives because, frankly, if your mother thinks it's okay for you to ask her her advice on every single thing you do, there that is telegraphing a little bit of the message of, I'm not really sure you could handle this without me. Mm. And that's disempowering. Talk to me about emotional reasoning. So this is when you believe that everything you feel, every emotion that you have is telling you something and telling you something yes. important that needs to be mm. acted on in some way. So why is trust your feelings not always good advice? <laughs> <laughs> that is the other, we, we call these the great untruths, that negative advice that I t- told you about, mm. that horrible advice that I feel like we're implicitly giving to children, if not directly. One is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And the next one is always trust your feelings. And that's the one that just sounds so nice. That that, that, that sounds, it sounds, it sounds romantic and yeah. lovely. And, it, and it's the, and it's the end of a lot of movies, you know, follow your heart. I mean, I've definitely said it myself for sure. So yeah, this is, this is, I need, I'm listening to this. A lot of this book came from my experience with cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, you start realizing that in some cases, you know, the feelings that come up sometimes, and this is, this also comes from Buddhism, this particular one, sometimes feelings just come up, (laughs) like, and thoughts just come up and you have no idea why. And, and, and that's one of the wonderful things about meditation, but other times they come up and you can figure out why, but it wasn't about what you initially thought it was about in the first place. You weren't really angry um, because this person did this one thing, you were really angry because you felt foolish about something else, or you felt ashamed of something. That a lot of you know becoming mature, becoming wise, is about talking back to your feelings and examining your fe- uh, examining your feelings. There's a wonderful quote. Um, I, I can't remember the name of the author at the moment, but she managed to. I've explained this this idea so many times, and I'm always glad when I can get it down to a. Um, to like a paragraph. And she just said, uh, your, your emotions are information, not directions. And I was like, yes, <laughs> you, you boiled it down to a line. Um, I think it's your emotions are, are information, not directions. Yep. 
And sometimes, you know, sometimes it, it is true. You should follow your heart. When I give advice to people about, you know, like what they should study, uh, my, my advice is always study the thing that you would study, even if someone was not giving you grades on it, you know, study like, but that's also partially because you'll be good at it. But for a lot of, a lot of dealing with your emotional nature, a lot of it, uh, a lot of growing up, it's learning to sometimes restrain those impulses, sometimes question them and, and sometimes ignore them entirely. Your second earliest memory was of getting a Christmas present that you didn't like. Tell me about that. Oh my! Oh my goodness! You you really have studied up on me. Oh, that's great. <laughs> right. um, yes, it's my second earliest memory. Um, my uh, and I and I, I didn't realize that this had a lot to do with freedom of speech um, until much much later, um, because it just was just a funny story. Uh, so I, um, I, I, my first memory was when I was four. Well, my fourth birthday. Um, and my second earliest memory is Christmas when I was uh, four. And my mother is British um, and she has this kind of um, the exaggerated sort of commitment to uh, British norms that sometimes happens when people try to like, raise kids abroad. So there was this very kind of like exaggerated sense that you always have to be polite. And my father's Russian, where there is, you know, it does not, not at all exaggerated, where there's a, a sort of a cultural norm towards brutal honesty, and that sometimes, like, really emphasizing the brutal. That <laughs> 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 essentially, it's like if it's not, if it doesn't sting a little bit, you might not be being truthful about it. And these had always been in perfect harmony: be honest and be polite. Be honest and be polite. You know, like I can do both. Um, but my auntie Rona. Um, and I learned later, this was actually just a, a, a like an inside gag gift that she got me um, uh, as a joke between her and my mom, got me this lousy plastic drum. It was like, like well, something you would have bought for like 25 cents today, like just terrible. And I look up at my mom, my dad and say, I have to be polite, I have to be honest, I have to be polite, I have to be, honest, I have to be polite. And, I, I, and, because, and then my mom asked me what I think of it. And I do what any four-year-old would do in that circumstance. I break out in tears because <laughs> I can't be both honest and polite at the same time. And my older sister, you know, Katie, she starts going, oh, baby doesn't like what he got for a present. So he starts crying. And I wanted, I was like, internally, I didn't have the vocabulary for it. But I was like, no, this is my first experience with a fundamental societal paradox. <laughs> I cannot be both polite and honest. And partially because of this tension between being polite and honest and growing up, growing up in a neighborhood where there were also a lot of other first generation American kids and also a lot of other immigrant kids and even some of the, uh, and, and people from different classes, you, you kind of internalize the idea um, that you really have to hear people out. You really have to kind of figure out where people are coming from. Um, and that you also, you know, sometimes, uh, sometimes it's more, more important to be honest than polite. So that, that I was going to say, which one won the, the honesty one. <laughs> Honestly, one. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, uh, I'm I'm British myself. So uh... <laughs> one thing you you will see in my interaction with other First Amendment lawyers and other uh, atheists is that I'm the uh, conciliatory one. <laughs> you know, I don't change my arguments, but I'm trying to figure out ways to win people over rather than say ah, go f off. You know, um, and that when it comes to my my lack of religion, I'm also someone who's deeply interested in people uh, in what people of faith believe, and I've devoted some of my career to, to, to protecting them. So I think you can be you know honest and nice, but it's really ultimately fundamentally most important um, that you do your best to be honest. There's been a big uh, increase in anxiety and depression, and even suicide yes. attempts, particularly. I mean, for both, but particularly in young women for the generation entering yep. school around 2013, 2014. Mm -hmm. Why? Um, why? What happened around those years? Why? Why did you see the spike 
starting from 13, 14? Well, interestingly, that the whole book, How the American Mind, the whole book is it's it's a social science mystery story to figure out what we why suddenly we saw this massive uptick in both free attempts to suppress free speech, to regulate it to death to a degree too, but also a massive increase in anxiety and depression. Like so, so something really changed and it hovers right around 2013, 2014, that, that cadre of students. Um, and we come up with six different theories on why, but probably the one that explains why this would have happened so rapidly, because some of the factors are things like helicopter parenting, um, which is disempowering and can lead to anxiety and, de- and depression, lack of free play, same thing. Um, some of this is um, the corporatization of universities, which tends to uh, exaggerate small differences into in, into big you know, uh, federal cases. Absolutely, some of it is ideology. Some of the social justice um, I- ideas you know, create greater conflict, create greater sense of isolation. But the only one that was very fast working um, that we could see that lined up perfectly was um, social media, uh, social media. And uh, that would have been um, uh, exacerbated by the fact that this was pretty much the first generation of students um, who had smartphones in their pockets and had access to Instagram, Facebook, um, Snapchat, all of these kind of things since they were very little. And we think that um, the rise of social media contributed to um, uh, to two things. One is political polarization. Um, and this all comes from homophily, like seeking like, that essentially people tend to gather together um, uh, when they agree on opinions. And just like I said earlier, that tends to make them more radical in the position of the tribe, in the position of the group. Um, this also incidentally happens among depressed people. And this is something that we're, I'm looking more into now. Um, and interestingly enough, finding out that my friend Nicholas Christakis has written some really great stuff on this. And so depressed people have greater access to other depressed people and like tends to uh, go to like. But the problem there is when it has a very similar effect as political polarization, that depressed people only talking to depressed people leads them to be more depressed. Mm. There's also, uh, and so we think that homophily is part of it. We definitely think the sorting of social media has something to do with it. But one of the reasons why we think this hits young women so much harder um, than young men is partially because uh, young men's, uh, you know, uh, aggression, uh, the, the, the sort of um, puberty level uh, awkwardness and uh, th- that stage when the hormones really kick in and kids really cha- start changing in, uh, from kids to men and women um, is largely expressed still physically, um, that, that essentially uh, fistfights pushing each other uh, and, you know, worst of all in the U.S., a very high uh, teenage murder rate. Um, that that uh, we're unfortunately a country that still has the absolute worst, most violent manifestation of uh, young male aggression in large numbers. But for girls, um, the way uh, aggression uh, comes out is usually social and verbal. Um, that essentially, the way you fight other girls is essentially by a competition to socially isolate each other. And that was surely nasty enough. And we, and all of us who went through grade school can remember at least, you know, some experience seeing what the what, what mean girls could be like at their absolute worst. And it usually wasn't very pleasant. But if you already have that unfortunate part of human nature and growing up, but you add to it this <laughs> smartest computer we ever built, something that would have been miracle technology, you know, five years ago, um, and even more so 100 years ago, completely unimaginable. 
that allows you to um, uh, engage in this behavior at, at the highest possible level, 24 hours a day for the rest of your life. And, he, and if, as soon as you think about that, like I start tensing up, I'm like, oh my God, yeah. like the idea of like people, you know, like young women checking their, you know, Instagram at two o'clock in the morning, not, not getting enough sleep partially because they know that someone has it out for them and, and they're going to make them look bad on, 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 on Instagram, that we do think that the relational aggression and, and uh, uh, plays a role in it as well. And unfortunately, social media makes the kind of junior high school, high school um, aggression so much greater. So we definitely think it's hitting women a little bit, uh, young women uh, decidedly harder, partially for uh, things related to sorting homophily and how it sort of puts typical high school level sort of squabbling at a at a level that's never been seen in human history. Couple of speed round questions just to finish off. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? What does a fulfilled life mean to me? Uh, you know, you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna give an honest answer. I'm not sure. That's the most honest answer we've had. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I've got, I've got guesses here and there, but I have really been enjoying being, uh, being very comfortable with how little I know in the, in the grand scheme of things. Um, And it's kind of funny because like, you know, I I mentioned being an atheist and, and, uh, but also I have a deep interest in Buddhism and I've talked to people who just kind of can't believe that like, well, surely you, you, you have like, you know, you, you, what's your sense of the order of the universe and all this kind of stuff. And like, how do you answer these deep necking questions? And they have a hard time believing that I take not being really kind of comfortable in a state of awe and not knowing can actually be really inspiring to some people. And for me, it's certainly, I mean, it took a while to cultivate, but being able to be like, wow, look at the universe and how little I could ever know about it mm. can actually feel kind of great. What is one thing our listeners can start doing today that have a positive impact on their lives? Wow. Um, there's, a, there's so many things <laughs> that they could do. Something that changed my life is cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, it's the reason why I'm such, a, a, um, such an evangelist of it. And what people really have to remember, though, is that I explain it to people and I really have to hit very hard. It's not about intellectually knowing that you engage, engage in cognitive distortions. Any person can learn that in half an hour, um, what cognitive distortions are and recognize that you engage in them. What you have to do is get on the habit of talking back to those distortions. When that voice in your brain says, you know, when a date goes badly that you're going to die alone, you get in the habit of, of writing down. Um, this is what I've thought. And this was my automatic response to it. Um, instead saying, well, you know, actually it just meant the date went badly. And when you, when you get in the habit of talking down to your, your, your mind like that, it can really, um, uh, lessen the, the, the loudness of some of those sort of unreasonable voices. But the fun thing about cognitive behavioral therapy is that asking yourself if the argument you just made is a cognitive distortion means asking yourself, was, did I just do an overgeneralization? Did I just engage in uh, uh, all or nothing thinking? Did I just mind read, act as if I know what someone is actually thinking when obviously I don't or know exactly what the future is going to look like? If we were to look at the list of cognitive distortions and train ourselves not just to argue, um, not to use them as guides to how we think, but how we argue with each other, the quality of argumentation um, could go up so much. And some of the tedium, some of the obnoxiousness of, about how people argue sometimes on, on, on campus could be lessened to something much more fun, which is like, how do we get to better ideas? How do we actually have honest discussions about difficult things? So my big thing is look at the list of cognitive distortions, 
um, and try to argue fairly with yourself. And then once you've done that, try to argue fairly with each other. When you were describing that, it almost, it almost sounds like you are, um, you're kind of strengthening and celebrating the devil's advocate almost in your brain. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. Um, devil's advocacy and thought experimentation are things that I repeat until I'm blue in the face because, (laughs) um, they make for better ideas. Um, and, And it's something that we're trying to get to the bottom of with students on campus is um, do they feel comfortable taking the other sides of arguments? Do they take do they uh, feel comfortable playing with ideas, um, even ideas in which there's a strong taboo to be on one side of it? And if they're not, they're not going to be very creative in, in being able to solve real problems. The role of devil's advocacy and thought experimentation, it's not a nice addition to intellectual um, discourse or to any productive discourse, it's essential. Greg, how can people find out more about you and your work? Um, you can go to the fire.org, um, the foundation for individual rights and education, or you can go to the coddling.com.